Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and on today's show we find out if the Reserve Bank Governor Dr Phil Lowe is telling pork pies on interest rates and whether they are really on hold for three years. We talk to the Australian's wealth editor James Kirby about that very important subject. I test out whether renewable energy could really deliver baseload power so we can kiss coal goodbye forever with Michael Lord who is the lead researcher with Beyond Zero Emissions. This guy is really convincing that we can embrace a green solution for our energy needs. I've got to say, I'm I'm neither a green warrior nor a black-hearted conservative who doesn't believe that's possible. This guy actually makes me think, in in the not-too-distant future, we may well be able to use renewables and live a normal life. Let's hope he's right. And then NAB Trades, Gemma Dale, looks at the trades on this online stockbroking website to give us insights on what stocks are hot and those that are not. So let's kick off with James Kirby from The Australian. Now, James, look, I... I I could do a lot of pleasantry conversation with you, but I really want to know what's going on inside your head. And so would a lot of the people watching this presentation right now, particularly when it comes to income and things like, what's your outlook for term deposits? Oh, look, it's so difficult, Peter. I mean, for so long, when we look back on it, it was a relatively easy business term deposits. I mean, when you didn't know what to do with your money or you were storing it or you just didn't want to be um, distressed with active investing anymore, you just put your money in the bank and it got four or five percent and off we went. Mm. It must have, looking back on it, it was pretty easy. Uh, Now, unfortunately, we actually know what the, unusually, we know the outlook because the RBA (coughs) has said they're going to hold rates where they are for three years. So I can tell you that, uh, uh, to the best of our knowledge, and it's better than usual, mm. what we're getting, which is zilch, it's going to be zilch for three years. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to hear an Irishman use the word zilch, but you did it very well, James. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this brings me to my next question. And you and I, we've been around the, uh, the neighbourhood plenty of times we've heard economists make predictions about economies and interest rates and we've never heard mm. we've never heard a reserve bank governor virtually promise that that the cash rate would stay at 0.1% for 3 years but you and I also know that if we do get a boom in 2021 or 2022 <laughs> it's going to be very hard for the reserve bank governor to keep that promise what do you say I completely agree with you. Uh, I mean, we have great respect for the RBA. And because they did this unprecedented call, and because they actually laid it on the line, we believe them that they will hold rates for three years. And so does the market. And that's that's why the rates are so low. That's why the big banks were able to give away the fixed rates so low. But cut to the chase, Philip Lowe, for all his powers, cannot know the future. And he couldn't possibly keep that promise. Let's just say that things really kicked up next year. Uh, In two years' time, it would be inconceivable that he could keep rates where they are. So I think it'll be revisited, hopefully. Hopefully it'll be revisited. And he will say, look, you know, it was uh, our best promise at the time. Uh, But uh, he'll change that if he has to. Of course he will. I mean, because it's unprecedented, because we've got no playbook here, no one knows. But logic would suggest that uh, that's only a promise for as long as it makes sense. 
Yeah. And, and I, I've used the argument, which I call the George Costanza argument from Seinfeld, who said, it's not a lie if you believe it at the time. Yeah. Well, he was sincere at the time. He sincerely wanted to keep them there for three years. Yeah. Early days, by the way, Peter. I mean, they may well stay there for some time. Mm -hmm. But uh, fall off my chair if we're still here in three years' time at these rates. Yeah, me too. All right, so do you think um, our interest rates here, the cash rate, could go negative? Uh, it's theoretically possible, but I think it's unlikely. Uh, I, I think they don't want that scenario. Uh, and now with this sort of up-tempo in confidence and small, limited, patchy up tempo in business and in property, uh, I, I think it's increasingly unlikely. Mm. But it's always possible. Yep. Do you think, because a lot of your readers are self-managed super fund retirees, do you think they understand the perils of saving and investing in products other than government guaranteed term deposits? No, I don't think so, Peter, because people never had to do it. Uh, and only the more adventurous type of, of investor, active investor of any description went out, went, went beyond the usual and went out there into sort of high deposit land. Uh, and, and they probably weren't familiar with the dangers or even the scandals that endlessly sort of broke in local circles about high deposits. How do they do it? So if the rates are X and someone's out there offering two times X, three times X, how do they do it? And we don't have to know the product to know that they must take multiples of risk to do that. So whatever the rate is, if the rates were four or 5% for a long time and someone was offering 15, well, they were probably taking three times the risk uh, that they needed to, not, not that they needed to, that to achieve that. And so when you get outside the banking system, people don't realize guarantees mean nothing. I mean, someone, the advertisement might say guaranteed, but it's only a guarantee from the promoter of the advertisement. It's very difficult for people to realize that this area is totally different. You're in uncharted waters. You're in, you're in a very different area than when you're with a, a, a bank, an approved deposit-taking institution with its $250,000 guaranteed per head, per bank. Yeah. I mean, what a great system that is. And it came in during the GFC, and it's been in long enough now that people know that part, but they don't realize that once you step out of that, you're on your own, basically. Yeah. Um, would you like it if, the ASIC, if ASIC had the resources to actually monitor these alternative products that are out there that often use large you know, uh, uh, expenditures for advertising but, but do come with a whole lot of potential problems and if, uh, effectively if ASIC could actually rate them publicly so people would know what are the risks associated with these sorts of organisations? Uh, I think it would be great if it could be done, and, and I don't want to hose it down straight away. But you have, you know, we were just saying at the start, it's all about the risk you take. If someone is offering, uh, and just because someone is offering eight or nine percent, it doesn't necessarily mean they're dodgy no. or or unreliable. Uh, they could be perfectly reliable, good operators who can do it and do it every other year, as long as you understand that they are really stretching the boat to get that. And uh, if you don't understand that, that's the problem. So let's say uh, the problem would be, Peter, that if you had two offerings and they were both offering 6%, say, and one was 
a very clearly defined product. It was a secure, let's say it was a secured mortgage and, and it was a factory being built in an established area. Mm. And those guys who put it together know they can probably pay 6% and they've done it for years. Yeah. So that's 6%. Someone else is offering 6% in a black box. You've no idea what they're doing. Mm. Uh, there's vague promises of this and that. They're both offering 6%. So how do you actually pin down and say that 6% is better than that 6%? That, that's the difficulty ASIC would have. So ooh, I think to be fair, it couldn't be simple. <laughs> and if no. it wasn't simple, it might be hard to follow. Yeah, you're, you're right. It wouldn't be simple, but it is interesting that the example that you used, I nodded my head, yeah, and I, and I, I do know of people who have those sorts of products out there. They, they do lend for factories, but they, are, mm. they, they only lend 65% uh, based on uh, the, the collateral of a residential mortgage the first mortgage. So we, we know that that's just a little bit better than your b black box example. Uh, look, mm. I know it would be difficult, but in a perfect world, it would be great for the inexperienced investor to see them ranked accordingly. But as you say, it would be very hard. But in a perfect world, it would be a, a good world for investors to have. Yeah, look, it would be great to have a scale, even if it was flawed and even, you know, I think, it, I think you could have one. I think it would be very hard to have something really simple, though. Yeah. Uh, so you'd have to find something in between, to be fair, yeah. on this. on this, Because you have to allow people to take risk. Mm. Can't stop them. And there's nothing, wrong, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the nature, as you talked about advertising at the start, this is the big problem in this area, advertising. You know, the big, the 9% is glowing and the fine print has got about 200 words that nobody's going to read, not to mention the PDFs, and, uh, but they, in a way they should at the very least say, well, why do they get the 9%? What are they doing? What are they doing? Are they lending to property? Are they lending to startups? Are they lending to small business where every second one or one in three could go under or have trouble? This is the thing. You really have to know what you're doing. Whereas once upon a time with the deposits, you didn't have to know anything else except what was the bank paying? What was its name? Yeah. And it's guaranteed. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. One last area, and a lot of people watching this would be either retirees or potential retirees mm. thinking about their nest egg and how they're going to grow it and preserve it over time. It seems to me that um, people fall in the trap of looking for alternatives for term deposits that pay higher interest rates because they, they in first principles, they want to preserve their capital. But to do that, they then go into higher risk returning type products where they think that, okay, they've been guaranteed four or five percent, they've got a million dollars in their super fund, if they get five percent they can live on 50,000 and they're happy. Where I, I would prefer to see retirees always be in quality assets, even if the, it means that the capital can go up and down, but they're, they're more likely to go up over time and secondly, they pay fairly reliable dividends except when, mm. except when pandemics come. come. Yeah. Well, what's your view Look, on I that? Think, well, the most common question, I guess, from readers or in the podcast or whatever, it's always the same at the moment. It's where can we safely put some money? Mm. Might be short term, might be long term. Where can we safely do it and get a good return? And the answer is there's nowhere you can get a really good return and put it safely at the moment. Unfortunately, that might change in, in time to come. But just now, you must take risks. But I, I, in principle, I see where you're coming from. And it's true. You know, look at the uh, look at the asset that is offering the return before you look at the return. And that probably would be the safe way to do it. So, if there are 
I see, to give an example, and it's a battered example, our big banks, but, but let's say that they do give dividends and they are consistent and you will get a period maybe once every 10 years where, where they'll skip one or two or they may reduce it, but really they pay dividends for a long, long time. There's a long history of it. And to that extent, there is a, it is a safer, more reliable stream of income than someone you've never heard of before, who you don't fully understand what they do, who offer twice that much. Yeah. And you just have to weigh them against each other and be, be pragmatic, I think. Yeah. I, I think that's an important education program for retirees to understand that is, if their capital is going up and down, but on a rising trend and in really good quality assets, that's probably a better bet than trying to take the risk on, on unknown businesses that are promising returns that, and, and they're kind of falsifying the fact that they look like term deposits and they're not. This is a killer, I think, point there. The word, the using any word like deposit or term or anything like that, be careful. As I say, term and deposit, those words don't mean it. They're not landlocked, if you like. They're not legally binding. They're not the proprietary of the Reserve Bank. Uh, and similarly, guarantee. Very, very careful. Who's the guarantee from? Unfortunately, there's no law that says I can't. I can put an ad in the paper tomorrow saying I guarantee a return. And the guarantee is from me. And people get them mixed up with uh, the official guarantees of the government, which is an unfortunate mix-up, but it's happening out there all the time. Yeah. Now, one final thing. Um, in April, March, April, we were of the belief that bank dividends would be, you know, pretty well put on hold for, for some time. But as the economic outlook improves and the, the, the data we're getting from the banks about loan deferrals and, and bad debts and whatever, it all starts to improve. Are you expecting that the news around banking dividends will improve over 2021? And then the final part of the question is, when do you think we'll be back to normal type dividends? And be right, James, be right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We can't, we, can't be, um, we can't be anywhere near normal till they free them, if you like, until the regulators allow them to pay whatever they want. Mm. So right now they can only go up to 50%. And if you look at the accounts, it says 49.8 or whatever, they push it to the max of their dividend payout ratio. So until uh, APRA drops the regulatory caps that they've forced on dividends for the banks, we can't even get near normal. So, let, so let's say that that goes, and that, let's say that goes soon in the next six months. Uh, then you'll see it slowly. And remember their dividends are higher. They have the capacity to pay bigger dividends uh, than most other functioning organizations just because of the way it works and the, the, the cash flows and everything. So I think with you'd like to think that within 12, 12 months to two years, 12 months to 18 months, really, maybe we'll be back <clears throat> at where they were. But we're not going to go back to where they're paying up 95% of their profits in dividends. And it wouldn't be good if they did. Mm. Uh, and we were getting that from big banks, which was really not sustainable. I mean, if you're paying 95%, how do you keep the bank going? How do you actually run the business? Mm. So we won't see them back up at those levels again. At the moment, they're about 50%. That is a payout ratio. It'll probably go, steadily uh, go back fairly quickly, you would think, up to the 70s and 80%. And they're going to look good uh, assuming the share prices are steady, as you say, they can fluctuate, but let's assume that they just rise on average 3 to 7% a year and those dividends come back at 70 80% of what they were. At that point, 
there'll be a, a, a they will be perfectly good investment choice, uh, particularly for people looking for income. We just got to see the APRA drop those caps and how much they can pay as dividends uh, first. Okay, James. So your your column um, comes out every Saturday. Do you write on any, any other day of the week? Uh, yes, uh, through the week. Yeah, we yeah, have uh, Tuesday to Thursday and uh, Saturday is of course uh, the large, the large, the large format feature. But you have to think about deeply, Peter. It takes the whole week. <laughs> And it's worth waiting for. James Kirby, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Well, it's ad time in the Black Friday and Cyber Monday weekend. This is when we are selling my book, Join the Rich Club at, wait for it, a 50% discount on the Switzer store. It's our biggest sale ever. Uh, Join the Rich Club will be half price from this Friday, the 27th of November, till the end of Monday, the 30th of November. Make sure you don't miss out on this very rare offer. Head to switzerstore.com.au to get your copy. Main points to remember, 50% off. Friday 27th of November until midnight Monday the 30th of November and only at the switzerstore.com.au and I started to sound a bit like Jerry Harvey then doing funny ads, didn't I? Well, everyone's talking about what the future might look like under an alternative uh, energy arrangement in our economy here locally and globally. I'm talking to Michael Lord, who's the lead researcher at Beyond Zero Emissions. Thanks for coming to the program, Michael. Thanks, Peter. Um, look, I will plead ignorance that the whole issue is so big and it's been thrown at us uh, from very from very different angles. Um, you know, we've got the LNG uh, gas uh, group, we've got hydrogen, uh, we've got solar. And a lot of people are just uh, finding it very difficult to, to comprehend, you know, where we're going to, what what our energy uh, world will look like in 10 years' time. So I'm going to ask some pretty basic questions to get people, you know, relaxed with the whole subject. But so the first question to you I, I have is beyond zero emissions, what is that? Yeah, what do we do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're, uh, we're a climate and energy think tank set up uh, about 12 years ago. Um, by a group of uh, people, actually with uh, most of them with an engineering background, who wanted to show that, you know, through this thicket, this minefield that you've been describing, if we just focus on the technology and the engineering, we actually already have most of the technologies we need to uh, reduce and eliminate greenhouse gas emissions mm. in all the sectors that produce it. So our first report, uh, which at the time was was pretty groundbreaking, uh, was called the Stationary Energy Plan, which showed how Australia's electricity system could be 100% renewable. Um, back 10 years ago, as I said, that was pretty groundbreaking. These days, you know, it's, that's kind of mainstream. Um, CSIRO and others, you know, uh, say the same. But we've gone on to show how existing technologies can el- eliminate emissions in all the sectors, transport, manufacturing, buildings, etc. Okay. So l- let me then ask the kind of basic question that would come out of the kind of commentary you hear in mainstream media. And the first 
and most prolific criticism of alternative energies to, to supply what we need is, oh yeah, but it can't do baseload. It can't do baseload. It, it can occasionally do baseload, but there'll be times when it can't do baseload. Now, given your background, what do you say when you hear someone say that? Well, I totally understand it because, uh, you know, we can't expect the average everybody to be know about everything, mm. uh, including the energy system mm. and the alternative energy system and how it might work, because it, it is quite different how it would work with renewable energy. Uh, the, we don't um, use the term baseload power. We describe that as a feature of the current system, but not a requirement. So the only requirement really of the electricity system or the fundamental requirement is that demand, whatever that is, is met, is matched by supply. Mm. So as long as we're doing that at all times, we don't need anything called baseload. Baseload actually comes from the fact that it's very difficult. Our system was based on coal-fired generators, which is very difficult to turn on and off and ramp up and down. They're, they're quite inflexible. Mm. Um You've got a different issue with solar and wind. Uh, with they're obviously weather dependent, but if you have enough solar and wind spread across the country, you can actually um, meet in real time electricity demand uh, about seventy to eighty percent of the time. So you then got twenty to thirty percent of the time that you need to cover, uh, and that can be done principally through um, forms of storing energy, so batteries and pumped hydro and other technologies we might discuss. Okay, so uh, people listening to this, um, and even though I live in the, the city of Sydney, I have a place in the Blue Mountains, which means that occasionally I get used to something that used to happen to me as a very young boy, a thing called blackouts. Now, right. there, are, there are people who live in cities of Australia who've never heard or seen blackouts. I think Perth gets the occasional blackout, um, and maybe Victoria has... You, you know better than me, but blackouts were something that was like, what in the hell? The TV goes off. You know, you, your parents would bring out candles and things like that. Yeah. In, in reality, would there be a transitional period if you got your way, if your organisation and, and, and those that support you got your way, would there be a transitional period where people might have to get used to blackouts until we learn how to run manufacturing, air conditioning, all those sort of things um, without coal-generated uh, energy? There'll be a transitional period, but there's no reason why uh, we have to get used to blackouts and there's no reason why it would reduce the reliability of, of uh, electricity supply through that transitional period. I, I have to admit, I've no idea why <laughs> you're getting more blackouts than before, but um, it's worth pointing out that the vast majority of those type of problems are network problems. So they're not, uh, and when I say the vast majority, I'm talking more than 95% of um, problems where people don't, uh, they have an interruption to their supplier to do with the poles and wires. So they're to do with um, you know, a, a, a failure in the network system and actually not anything to do with how the electricity is generated. Mm, okay. So, but, you know, I, I, I said to you at the beginning, I'm coming here as a total amateur. But at the end of the day, I figure you guys have to, have to use education effectively to make normal people say, oh, yeah, this, this is doable. Like, yeah, we like the idea of not uh, you know, adding greenhouse gases to the world and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we want to make sure our air conditioning works when it's 100 degrees yeah. on a Sunday and we're watching the cricket. 
and the, we, don't, yeah. we don't want the refrigerator to go off because you know the beer has to be kept cold. All those sort of basic things. If you're going to sell a new transitional idea, even if it's a good idea, you really have to uh, convince people that A, it will work. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, those are fair enough concerns, right? Mm. We don't uh, we don't want to go backwards, and that's and that's what we aim to show. One that it's it's technically achievable. Yeah. Um, two that it's affordable, and you know, I'm happy to say now for most things now it's actually going to be cheaper. So the the renewable uh, system supplied by renewable energy will now be cheaper. Mm. And, and thirdly, what we say more and more is how great this is going to be for Australia. So there's all sorts of benefits that can come from this, not just lower power bills, but a lot of economic possibilities, mm. because Australia is an amazing place to generate <laughs> renewable energy. Mm. There are not many developed countries, if any, that have uh, Australia's advantages, uh, particularly in solar, but also in wind. Yeah. And um, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about all the jobs and economic opportunities that are available yeah. to now, now, Michael, I will get to hydrogen because I know that's one of your, your areas of speciality. But you know, I, I must admit, um, when I heard about um, you know um, Mike Cannon Brooks talking about a solar farm in the Northern Territory linked to a cable that would then generate power for Singapore, that to me sounded like the future. And you know, I think most people would say Cannon Brooks while it can be a little bit excessive in some areas, when it comes to technical matters, the guy's a very smart guy. And so yeah. I don't think he'd be investing his money unless he believed it was a, a doable um, project. No, it was pretty exciting when he announced that because um, since 2015, we, we issued a report, Renewable Energy Superpower, and I'm glad to say that kind of idea of Renewable Energy Superpower has since gained quite a lot of ground. Um, we spoke about this possibility um, of Australia exporting electricity directly through wires to, to Southeast Asia. And just before that project that you're talking about, Mike Cannabrooks' Sun Cable project was mentioned, we issued a report for the Northern Territory saying that the Northern Territory could export um, electricity. But, uh, you know, we knew it was an ambitious project that would require a lot of money and visionaries to back it. and and. The timing was great because as we released this report, the Sun Cable project came to press, and um, shortly after that, Mike Cannonbrook said uh, he was going to be one of the backers. Yeah. All right. Let's go to hydrogen. Yeah. Um, what's the potential of hydrogen? The potential of hydrogen, um, in our view, is to decarbonize some of those areas that are tough to do with other. Um, in, in other ways. So when we talk about hydrogen, we talk about renewable hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So that's hydrogen made with renewable electricity, which you then run through water. Water's made of hydrogen and oxygen. You split the water and uh, then you have hydrogen to, to use as you want. Mm. Now, I, I know I interviewed um, a WA company called the Hazer Group, which is actually working in that space um, and they're also getting graphite as a as a byproduct as as well as getting hydrogen which I think the the goal is to use them in uh, moving trucks and things like that so is hydrogen seen as a, a complementary contributor to the energy solution or could it replace LNG and even solar because there's heaps of water around and I guess there's heaps of hydrogen potentially. Yeah, yeah, there is. It's the most um, 
uh, it's the most abundant element in the in the universe. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean it's always easy to get hold of. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like the real world, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, the, people talk about hydrogen from a number of viewpoints. So one idea that has grabbed the attention of uh, politicians and businesses is the idea that Australia becomes an exporter of hydrogen. Uh, and yes, it, in our view, starts to replace the LNG exports. So some countries led by Japan and South Korea have seen um, hydrogen uh, as a major plank in their decarbonisation strategies. So Australia, because we have all this land and sun and wind, um, is seen as one source of that renewable hydrogen. Um, we also talk about hydrogen's importance, um, maybe even greater importance as a, a feedstock. So it's, it's an energy, but it's also a chemical input into the production of several materials, but two in particular. One is ammonia, which is very important as a fertilizer. Uh, or a basis for the production of fertilizers and explosives. So that has to be made with hydrogen. At the moment, that's from a natural gas source normally, but it could be, um, we see the future of ammonia production as being through renewable hydrogen. And the second big area is with making zero emissions steel. So steel is usually made with coking coal. There are other ways of making it. Um, but uh, we know how to make it with hydrogen, uh, which uh, that would eliminate the vast majority of emissions from steel manufacturing. So uh, two questions. What is renewable hydrogen for people who are listening? And secondly, um, at this point in time, I presume the relative cost of making steel using hydrogen rather than a coking coal um, is um, probably not competitive, but with economies... Could it become as cheap, if not cheaper, than making steel under the normal yeah. processes? Yeah, two good questions. I mean, what is renewable hydrogen? Because the people talk speak about a number of different ways of making greener hydrogen. So I suppose it's easiest to start off with how it's made at the moment. It tends to be made by taking natural gas, which is uh, carbon and uh, hydrogen, and splitting it, taking the hydrogen, and then... The problem with that from a, uh, a climate change point of view is you're releasing the carbon uh, in the form of carbon dioxide. Um, so some people say you can do that, but capture the carbon dioxide, but actually you won't capture all of the carbon dioxide and uh, you're just adding a cost to the existing process. So the future as we see it is renewable hydrogen where you, um, it's, uh, you, the only inputs are renewable electricity, water and air. So you... Um, uh, actually, it's just renewable electricity and water, and then to make ammonia, you need you need air. Mm. So, yeah, and, and, and um, there's no carbon addition. As long as you're using renewable electricity, there's there's no carbon addition. The only two things you're producing are hydrogen and oxygen. And are you getting the renewable electricity from wind, solar, and yeah, and yeah, yeah. W wind and solar. Yeah. Um, depending on how whether so you, so you have the option of not running it's called an electrolyzer that produces the hydrogen from the water you, you could just rely on wind and solar and when it's not windy or sunny um just not run the electrolyzer right there, there are places in australia where 70 75 percent of the time you'd be able to run the electrolyzer 
without any kind of backup uh, at all. There's there's a project we might speak about more called the Asian Renewable Energy Hub in um, Western Australia, which plans to make renewable hydrogen. It's by far the largest, even bigger than Mike Cannon-Brooks' Sun Cable project, by far the largest renewables project in the world. And they plan to put a lot of that energy into electrolyzers to make renewable hydrogen. Is there a politician from the coalition who sees the vision, believes the vision, and is saying, okay, I can see this happening in five or ten years' time? Is there anyone like that? I I presume there are Greens and Labor people who – because they, in a sense, philosophically want that to happen. But I'm I'm saying the coalition because you you think that someone from the coalition just needs to see the argument test yeah. it out and say, yeah, yeah, this could happen. Yeah. Well, beyond zero emissions is is sure that our message, um, conservative politicians should be very receptive to our message because we talk a lot about economics and jobs uh, and, and uh, the business potential for the technologies we're talking about. And in fact, with renewable hydrogen, I'd say probably more than – almost any other technology that we're interested in, it it does already have cross-party backing. Mm. So uh, there are renewable hydrogen projects around the country that have uh, state and federal government support, financial support, and the federal government's uh, renewable roadmap, which they released, I think, last month, names five technologies that they want uh, to um, prioritise, and one of them, is hydrogen. Now, they don't exclusively talk about renewable hydrogen. They also talk about making um, hydrogen for fossil fuels. But we think that um, renewable hydrogen, which will just become cheaper and cheaper, is, is going to be the, uh, the well, winner. Yeah, if that's the case, the price mechanism will win. So, and that's, a, that's right. That's a good thing for you. All right. So, um, how long before Australia agrees? Totally with you guys. How long? Give give us a a time frame. (laughs) On everything or just on hydrogen? Let's go hydrogen first. Yeah. Okay. Well, things are already, significant things are already starting to happen uh, with hydrogen. And they're probably being led by its use uh, for exports and for ammonia. So Australia does already make quite a bit of ammonia for, uh, that gets turned into explosives and, um, fertilizers for domestic use uh, and some exports. So some of those ammonia plants, for example, back to the the Pilbara, are switching um, incrementally to using renewable hydrogen. Uh, So they have what you might say pilot projects. Um, But there are many projects uh, around the country, renewable hydrogen projects. The largest, I think, that's getting off the ground is one in South Australia. Uh, which is a 70, would use a 75 megawatt electrolyzer. So uh, the best way of saying that is that's a very large one (laughs) by today's standards, Um, runoff solar and wind. Um, So, so yeah, there are are various projects around the country and they're, they're looking at either ammonia production or exports as a route. Um, what's the best Australian company? In the renewable space, particularly renewable hydrogen, is there such a is there a company that's sort of leading the way? 
Um, I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I actually want to uh, single out any particular company. Mm. I'd, uh, I'd. I'd rather from our just to um, preserve the independence of our think tank. Talk about technologies mm. uh, rather but, than okay. Without naming them, is there a a a, a group that really are leading the way? And they could become very important. Like, for example, like BHP once upon a time was a very small company and it's become a very important export yeah. company. Do you yeah. see that there is a group of Australian renewable um, companies, re- renewable energy companies and renewable hydrogen in particular that could become like the, 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 yeah. the future BHPs? Yeah, there the, the certainly are, and and there's two, there's two sides to the coin. There's the there's the production of the renewable electricity required to make the hydrogen, and then there's uh, those who make the hydrogen. So they're often separate. Mm. Um, you know, on the renewable energy side, there there are plenty of companies in Australia with uh, that have already built renewable energy and also have grand ambitions to build uh, much greater ones like. Sun Cable, Asian Renewable Energy Hub, and many projects around the country, and then and then there are companies, uh, either new entrants uh, into the hydrogen market or those who already make ammonia. Um, so it's, it would actually be quite a long list, uh, um, and who knows who's going to be the BHP? But that's uh, that's the potential. Okay, one last one, Mike. Um, just imagine you're on Q and A on the ABC and uh, a very um, influential shock jock um, um, anti-renewable energy person has just put the case for why it's just pie in the sky. It'll never happen. What would you say to conclude the program for people listening who want to believe it's possible but have been persuaded to believe that, you know, the shock jock's going to be right? And you guys are just going to be a bunch of, you know, idealistic, nice people who will never really achieve it. What would you say? Well, I'm glad to find out, Peter, you're not a shock jock. (laughs) (laughs) I try not to be. (laughs) But I do ask questions that people might want to hear the answer to. I think this is a really important one. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I'd say don't don't listen to me. Look at all those around the world who are pledging to eliminate re- uh, greenhouse gas emissions by using 100% renewable energy and achieving net zero or carbon neutral uh, by mid-century or often earlier. So there are something like 100 countries in the world that have made that pledge. We've seen uh, very significant announcements recently from the governments of China, Japan, South Korea, which add to previous announcements by the European Union and the UK and others saying that they will uh, move rapidly to zero uh, emissions, which means 100% renewables. On top of that, there are thousands of companies around the world. So one place where these um, company um, uh, pledges are made is called the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is a website you can visit. The number of companies who make these formal commitments to uh, reduce their own emissions goes up every day. It's now more than a thousand. Uh, we've got companies like Google and Microsoft saying not only will they eliminate their greenhouse gas emissions, they will go further and offset the, all the emissions they made in the past, in the, in the 80s mm-hmm. and 90s and 2000s. 
um, from using um, non-renewable energy. Uh, investors are increasingly saying they are they see high carbon as high risk, and they want to invest in renewable energy, and they want f firms that they invested to show how they are how they're managing this transition. Mm. So uh, all of these forces tell me that many smarter people than me have concluded this is possible and okay. it's happening. So while I've got you uh, off the ropes um, and, and, you're, <laughs> and, you're, and you're in the middle of the ring doing well, uh, it, it doesn't surprise me to think Google and Microsoft might do might, might make those sort of promises because they are big users of power. You know, yeah. uh, but is there a manufacturing company that stands out that has made a very big commitment to that? Uh, yeah. I've got a funny feeling Volvo has in, in relation to their, their trucks. Uh, I've written stories in the past. But is there, is there a standout one for you that you think, oh, that's old mainstream manufacturing and, and, and they see their future with renewables? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and perhaps you're right. Uh, using Google and Microsoft isn't the best example because people ex expect them to be cutting edge. But there are many examples also of manufacturers. Uh, so, for example, there are last time I looked – five or six um, global steel makers who have pledged to become carbon neutral. We're talking about really large uh, global steel makers like ThyssenKrupp in, in Germany. And steel you know, is intimately related with the use of coke and coal, one of Australia's largest exports, and just in itself produces 7% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, the manufacturing of steel. And yet, Major companies, uh, steel companies, uh, it also includes InfraBuild, which is Sanjeev Gupta's company, which owns the steelworks in Wyala in West, uh, South Australia. Um, so these companies have pledged to eliminate their greenhouse gas emissions. There are, I think, 35 cement companies. So Beyond Zero Emissions a few years ago issued a report called Rethinking Cement. We wanted to challenge the idea that we couldn't eliminate the emissions from cement, which at the time, the the industry's position was this is impossible. You have to leave us alone because this is one sector that can't do it. Um, and now we've got 35 companies, including the world's largest cement maker, uh, Lafarge Holcim, saying they will eliminate their greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, plenty of manufacturers, um, Toyota, VW, I'm not sure about Volvo, you might be right, um, have also made the same commitment. It's funny, as I listen to you and you are based in Ballarat, I'm not sure whether this uh, entrepreneur was either in Ballarat or Bendigo, but when, you, when you're not in Victoria, you, you think they're both the same, those two places. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> they're goal connection as well. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure I wrote about him many years ago when I was small business editor for the Australian newspaper. His name was Erskine. It was his surname. And he, um, he was making bricks using methane from the, the garbage area in either Bendigo or, or Ballarat and uh, he, he just seemed to be so ahead of his time in yeah. using renewable resources, tapping the methane in, in, a, in a garbage dump to, to power a brick-making um, factory which then became a target of a, of a big battle being one, one of the big brick-makers in Victoria trying to put him out of business and, uh, ah. and prefer, 
Yeah, that's that's interesting to hear. Um, Brickworks have a plant in Tasmania that who use sawdust for most of their energy input to making bricks. Mm. But even better than that, <laughs> you've got me on. I'm actually interested in brick making. We wrote a report a couple of years ago called Electrifying Industry, showing how we could take the natural gas out of all industrial processes and replace it with renewable electricity. And one of them was, was uh, bricks. And one way to do that would be to supplement the heat with microwaves. And so people have shown this on quite a large scale that you could really reduce the energy input uh, and uh, increase the productivity if you used microwaves in the kiln, microwave assistance. Um, but um, no one's taken us up on the challenge to do that yet. <laughs> well, I guess one final thing then is that if if the world embraces the f- the future as you see it and the, the the future that you think is possible, do we, do you think we then will get an enormous multiplier effect of so much? brain power being committed to alternatives that the actual supply of energy from renewables will be a lot more than what we're currently calculating and then the cost savings as well will be a lot better than what we're calculating. Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, we we know we can get more energy from renewables than we need because we know how much sunlight is hitting the, the earth, we know how much wind there is and we just need to capture a tiny fraction of it for all the energy we need. But um, that that um, investment of intellect and effort is actually starting to happen. So 2020, as glum a year as it has been, has actually be, become quite an exciting area in uh, renewable energy and climate change because of the type of uh, corporate and national commitments I'm talking about uh, and the fact that um, the the cost of renewables has just continued to decline um, to the to the level now where uh, coal and gas will find it very hard to compete. Yeah. Well, from my point of view, uh, I just hope that uh, technology uh, heads in the right direction to make your goal become a reality one day. So um, at this point in time, I'm not sure if you're there. Well, of course, you're not at this point in time, but I'm hopeful that one day you guys win this argument. Yeah, well, thanks, Peter. We're, cer- we're certainly trying to, and we, and we think we are. Okay, great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks, Peter. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated, and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. 
So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife, Maureen Jordan, Mm. um, that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? So joining me on the show now is Gemma Dale from NAB Trade. Gemma, your title is so long and convoluted. <laughs> How about just so we have a bit of a laugh, tell us what your title actually is. Uh, it's Director SMSF and Investor Behaviour. <laughs> investor Behaviour. Mm. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, Investor Behaviour, because you actually have a, like a window on what people are doing on the NAB Trade website. That's part of your job, isn't it, to see what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's fun, right? I get to uh, to see all of the trades that go through on a daily basis and mm. what people are buying and selling, and it's fascinating. Okay, now you are a remarkably young person, but you've been <laughs> at Nab Trade for as long as I can remember. So, Nab Trade itself has been on a journey, mm-hmm. and clearly the numbers are getting bigger and bigger. Um, and can you tell us what the people are like who trade on NAB Trade compared to where it was, say, a few years ago and, and what they are like now? Yeah, sure. So this year in particular has been fascinating. Uh, we have, first of all, our retail, our investors are retail. So they are mums mm. and dads. That's the usual term that people use. You yeah, don't have to I've, be I've a actually got in trouble by <laughs> yeah. one, one guy actually rang up and mm. castigated me mm. for using the term mums and dads. You know, he didn't want to be re- – as though he was a second-rate performer because of the mums and dads. Yeah, like the, so the implication is mums and dads is a little bit patronising, right? Yeah. And you don't need to be a parent. Yeah. Uh, so we have young people, we have older people, we have many retirees. Mm. If you look at the investor base in general, the wealth as in Australia, it's mm. pretty representative, frankly, of how the Australian population invests. The wealth tends to sit with older people. They've mm. had time to accumulate the wealth. We have self-managed super funds. Uh, we we have older people managing their retirement. Mm. Uh, we have people accruing wealth over time, and we have plenty of young investors as well. So the term mums and dads is a bit misleading. It's yeah. a sort of general. We'll call them non-professional. Say. Well, they wouldn't like that either, would they? Because they, they are actually acting like professionals, aren't they? They absolutely are. And in, in addition to that, if you are managing your own retirement savings mm. and you've chosen not to hand that to a professional, mm. I mean, that's your lifestyle right now and that's your living. Mm. So it's quite interesting. What has been most fascinating is we have seen an extraordinary influx of new investors this year in yeah. particular. And I came from an advice background. Many years ago, I worked with financial planners exclusively and dealt with the public only if they were coming via a financial planner. Mm. And the perception of retail investors, of mums and dads and everybody else, uh, people who are not working in investment markets, was that they don't make the greatest decisions when it comes to investing their own money, that they panic when the market falls, they Mm. like to buy at the peak because they have fear of missing out, which is a relatively new term, but the concept's Mm. been around for a long time. So they they tend to make poor investing decisions because they can't manage their own emotions. They're motivated by greed and fear in the wrong ways. Mm. I, having watched people invest very closely through NABTRADE for the last few years, had an idea that was not true, right? Mm. When you look at self-directed investors and how they invest, people are pretty smart when it's their own money, right? They don't make stupid decisions for fun. When it's your money, you're going to be very careful mm. and prudent. 
what has and also the industry's done an incredible job of drilling into people this idea that you don't panic sell yeah. and that you don't buy at the peak so we've been talking about it in the public domain for a really long time the first real test though was the beginning of this year with covid yeah. so the market peaked in february 20 uh 2020 mm. at that point in time to give you an idea of what investors have been doing our cash book, so money, people can keep money in the platform ready to trade, yeah. but in cash, right? So they're not holding shares, they're holding cash. Mm. Usually it means I want to buy something, but I haven't found out what mm. it is yet. Mm. That cash was at a peak. So it had been building up for years. People had been building up all of their cash, waiting for an opportunity, but they felt the market was too high. When the market fell off a cliff in February and we had the sharpest correction in history, it was mm. incredibly quick, 30% fall in three weeks, mm. just eye-watering how fast prices were falling with a very clear catalyst, which was COVID and the shutdowns around the world. Investors started buying. They didn't panic sell. We saw the opposite. So we normally see about a 55% split of buys to sell. So 55% sells, 55% buys, 45% sells. Most people are building up wealth, not selling it down. Uh, and so we see that split. What we saw in March and April when the market was falling was an 80-20 split. So 80% of trades were buying, mm. only 20% of people were selling. And they have been buying throughout the year. So we saw buying people, buying at a discount, thinking this is amazing, I can get shares cheaper. And the other thing we saw was a huge number of new investors. They were younger, mm. not young necessarily, but mm. younger than our traditional investors, which is not surprising because frankly, you probably already have an account yeah. <laughs> if you were gonna trade. Yeah. Uh, so it was people who didn't have an account, they've come to market for the first time and buying like crazy. What numbers did you get that were new to NAB Trade around this correction time? So we saw five times our average number of new investors in March mm. and we saw three times our average number in April mm. and we have probably seen double the average number throughout the rest of the year. So the numbers have started to slow down, mm. not least because if you were going to open an account, you've probably already done it by yeah. now. Uh, we have just seen just this incredible influx mm. and mostly what they're buying is really conservative, sensible stuff. We mm. saw people buying banks. We saw them buying ETFs. Banks at low prices when the crash was on. You're right. Yeah. 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 Buying ETFs. Yeah. Uh, buying travel stocks, which was interesting. That's very Well, contrary. that was risky. But, yeah. But, but it <laughs> yeah. was, yeah, I must admit I was recommending it. Mm. But I was saying you might have to wait a year or so to get your your money out of these, they've come back a lot faster than we expected. There were a lot of things that came back faster than we expected, yeah. So they were buying those. What was interesting, they didn't buy Virgin, right? They didn't buy stuff that was teetering. Yeah. They bought Qantas mm. because most investors understood that the chances of Qantas going under were very, very small, but the price had come off really mm. aggressively. Qantas will still be standing at the end of this yeah, of and course. their revenues will take a long time to come back. Mm. But it will still be standing. Yeah. So our investors were buying Qantas, they were buying Flight Center, they were buying banks and ETFs. Uh, so we saw this really uh, conscientious approach basically going, I'm never going to get to buy shares at this price again and mm. I'm going to buy as much as I can. Mm. And as the rally continued, the buying started to slow down. Mm. So it's been really interesting to observe through the year people taking advantage of the opportunity to buy really cheaply. The other one that they bought really cheaply because they could, was buy now, pay later. Mm. So Afterpay's been in our top Not many people got $8.12 for Afterpay, did they? <laughs> that was over a 90% buy those days, right? <laughs> so our guys, when they saw those prices, were mm. like, it's a risk I'm happy to take. Yeah. Uh, Afterpay's been in our top 10 for three years now. 
So the top 10 is very, very predictable, generally speaking. It's financials, it's big miners. Uh, it's exactly what you would expect it to be. And then after CSL, pay, of course, is in there. Yeah. But we see afterpay as where they were looking for growth and then slowly zip and the others have mm. started to come in as well. And this year, when they got absolutely hammered back in March and April with the idea that their entire revenue model is based on people who just lost their jobs mm. being able to buy stuff they may be not able to afford mm. and therefore got absolutely beaten up like nobody's business, yeah. our investors were willing to take a punt on that. They have done so well on those they, stocks. It's not They funny. really should send Josh Frydenberg a very big Christmas card because JobKeeper was very important to that whole story, wasn't it, when you think job about keeper it? JobKeeper and JobSeeker. It's exactly mm. the same playbook as during the GFC. Mm. Uh, so both sides of government have been, you know, reading their canes, right, and understanding that when the market – uh, sorry, when the economy gets hit hard, you've got to give people money to spend. Mm. For those people who don't know what she's talking about, <laughs> Keynes was Lord John Maynard Keynes, mm. who's wrote a – well, I, I know many of the books he wrote, but he was famous for, you know, talking about spending and prospering, and that's what he advised the British government to do. And I think uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt accepted his advice with the New Deal, and mm. that certainly was the case. You're right, both mm. Labor and the Coalition have used that – what about profit taking then? So everyone's smart mm. on the Are you seeing profit taking now? Yeah, there's been a real shift. So the last few months, the market started tracking sideways around July, mm. uh, in Australia anyway. And so a lot of our investors had done unbelievably well through March and April through to July. Market starts to trade sideways. Mostly what we see is a drop in volume. So people just don't trade as actively. Mm. Many of them are very happy to hold on to what they bought during yeah. that period. They were yeah. long-term buys. It's been it's been an interesting year so the question i've had most often from the media and professionally is are you seeing robin hood traders are you seeing people blow up the market retail investors are changing the market they're doing all this crazy stuff it's fomo and that's why markets are so far disconnected them from what's happening in the economy and what are you saying is an answer we have not seen that at all right mm. we saw a lot of buying mm. what we have not seen is aggressive day trading, speculative stuff. I mean, I would say that the buy now, pay later was a bit speculative. Mm. We couldn't have been 100% certain. Yeah. And IPOs bring out that sort of thing in this kind of environment. Sure. Mm. I mean, we didn't know for sure that all those businesses would be standing at the end of COVID. However, most of our investors were willing to take an educated guess that it was going to work out okay. Mm. They certainly didn't put all of their money into speculative stuff. They were mostly buying very high-quality businesses at a time that prices were really depressed for a very explicit reason as well. Like It wasn't like the GFC where we actually had no idea what was going on while it was happening. Yeah. And a couple of days later, we were like, most people were like, what is Bear Stearns? What happened there? Right. <laughs> why, why does it matter? <laughs> and so it was here we all knew exactly what was going on and why. Yeah. And so we've seen this aggressive buying of mostly very sensible stocks and they're holding it this really strong tendency to hold but we do see some profit taking it tends to come from our more mature investors a lot of our investors do have to take profits here and there because they're in retirement so they need to live on the income dividends have been cut like crazy september quarter dividends were down 50 percent so if you're relying on dividends from your portfolio and they're not in excess of your needs some investors have had to take profits they're not getting revenue from their term deposit 
deposits anymore mm-hmm. as interest rates have been cut even further. So we've seen some profit taking. It tends to be in banks and stuff where investors know exactly what the price range is likely to be. They're very familiar with how those stocks behave and they'll take profits where they've done really well. We've seen a bit of profit taking in something like Afterpay where if you bought it at $8 and it's now over 100 you've done extremely well yeah. and it doesn't hurt to take some money off the table. It also helps with some of our investors where their portfolios have gotten out of whack unintentionally. Mm. So they bought some stuff speculatively that's now 25% of the portfolio because it's done so well. Mm. And so they trim and then rebalance a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Overseas stocks. Mm. Are Australians buying a lot more overseas stocks than, say, three years ago? So through NAB trade, you can buy directly in the US, the UK, Germany and Hong Kong. It's the same brokerage as buying in Australia, so the only thing you need to take into consideration is FX. And that is, sorry, foreign exchange, like the actual. Very good. Uh, <laughs> I'm correcting Very myself. Good. So the, the impact of the Australian dollar mm. and so on. So for many investors, that's a new experience. If they were ever going to buy US stocks, they would buy it via an ETF or a managed mm. fund. So we've seen an enormous uplift in people wanting to buy, particularly in the US. The US is over 80%, yeah. over 90% generally, of international trades. And that has been building over many years, not least because the S&P 500 has done four times better than the ASX over the period from the GFC until very recently. So investors who have been holding international shares have done extremely well. And the primary reason is tech stocks. Mm. So owning Apple and Amazon and Google and all of these guys has been very, very valuable for anyone who did it. And those Mm. who didn't have sort of lagged a bit. So we've seen that real uplift over time. This year has presented some interesting opportunities the currencies fluctuated a lot which has made it a bit harder for investors but when they do go offshore the number one thing they buy is tesla Mm. that is very very popular one reason maybe is that it's the 10th largest company uh, listed in the US, but it's not in the S&P 500. So for many investors, they have the S&P 500 plus Tesla to give them the market in mm. inverted commas. Uh, the other reason is it's done unbelievably well. And yeah. also it's a very sexy, exciting product. People see the appeal yeah. of it. It's environmentally positive as well and it's high tech, yeah. We well, see the UK bringing forward uh, their electric vehicle uh, transition. So Boris Johnson saying, well, we said 2035, now we're saying 2030, that we won't have any internal combustion engines mm. being sold in the UK. That's very material yeah. to bring forward. It starts to become very, and very G- powerful. GM have pumped up their electronic vehicle um, Too, and they're well. taking a stake in many uh, many of the uh, the smaller manufacturers, which is interesting. They sold off some of their manufacturing plants and then mm. sort of took equity as a result. So it's been quite interesting to see how all that's playing out. That's a field that our investors are very, very interested in. Mm. Uh, they will mostly buy tech in the US. Yeah. So they will buy the big names. Microsoft is very, very popular. Apple's less popular than it used to be, but it's always still in there. Mm. So we see those names coming through really strongly because investors want to partake in that change it's amazing stuff isn't it um have you tried to work out why it's become more popular it's like normal people are participating in the stock market like never before Mm. you know you and i have been looking at the sort of people and the ones we described, we described earlier, the older Australian who's been maybe started off with a broker, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and and then did migrate to the online world because of the cheapness. And I, mm. 
I blame my colleague Paul Ricard who started, <laughs> who started ComSec. He's, he's the first one to put a cat amongst the pigeons when it comes to fees. Um, do you think the internet really has made it so much easier for people to be interested in the stock market, to actually execute and do stuff? And then the information that's on the internet as well um, has just made it so much easier for this sort of thing to happen. Buying shares is a dramatically different experience to what it was 20 years ago. And I often give the example of the first share I bought when I I was 18 and Mm. I wanted to invest. My father had learned to invest when I was a teenager, so I was watching him learn. But in order to buy a share, I had to look up the share price, yesterday's share price, in the newspaper. Mm. I had to find a broker in the yellow pages. Half of what I'm talking about won't be familiar to people listening. <laughs> had to look it up in the yellow pages. Yeah. I had to ring them. And you imagine how much time they gave an 18-year-old girl yeah. who rang up and said, you know, I want to buy $2,000 worth of shares or whatever it is that I'd managed to scrape together from my job. Uh, you know, and, uh, and then effectively trust them to place a trade for me. Mm. But no visibility of it at yep. all. Uh, I got a contract note through the mail several mm. days later. Uh, it was an incredible – I had to get the money to them in order to pay for it. It was an incredibly different experience. It was slow. It was difficult. Mm. It was very opaque, so I didn't really know what was going on. And I was guessing what I was going to buy. Mm. And if I asked the broker what to buy, I'm not entirely certain they were much better educated than I was. Yeah. Now, if you go on NabTrade, and it's true of all of the brokers, we have a depth of research. So we get Morningstar Research and a whole lot of others. We get fabulous articles and videos from you guys. Mm. So all of these insights and research that are frankly better than the average professional investor had 20 years ago. We have real-time share prices, Mm. not 20 minutes delayed, actual real-time. You are watching what is happening in real-time on the market. The information, and that's the US as well as Australia, the information that is available to you is unbelievable compared to what it used to be Mm. not just the information but also the research also the insights that are attached to it so you can get share trading ideas you can do it instantaneously and as you say it's cheap now Mm. i think my first trade cost me 75 dollars 20 years ago yeah and now it's you know 14.95 it's just a different world and you can see it all so you can go in and look at your portfolio anytime you can go in after the market's closed it's just a different experience and so it is very attractive to people who would otherwise be intimidated Mm. by having to make that phone call do you think we've been helped by low interest rates as well that it must be a a lot (laughs) of young people saying i'm never going to be able to get a deposit for a home waiting for a term deposit to help me so they probably are having a crack at the stock market I, there are two groups of people who've been very adversely affected by low interest rates and they are retirees mm. and they are young people trying to save to buy a house. Mm. It is so difficult for them and I mm. really feel for people who, you know, by sheer misfortune of age mm. are in that bracket. And so many of them have to take more risk with their money in yeah. order to be able to get to a point where they can buy a home in Australia, which remains just important to most Australians. So buying shares is one way to do that. We get plenty of young people who are 18 and 19 and 20 and buying a house is not top of mind for them, right? They just want to learn about- Go overseas when they'll let them go overseas. Yeah, poor little creatures. They can't even get overseas. I mean, seriously, all the fun things we did when we were young, they can't do. It's just rotten. I couldn't go to the pub for six months. It's been poor kids in Melbourne, my God. So, you know, the, the opportunity suite available to them 
uh, for investing is unbelievable. They're very privileged in that way. Mm. But they also have far fewer opportunities in the real world at the moment. And a lot of them are using the stock market as a way of building up some wealth in order to be able to do that stuff. Okay. Now, because this is a podcast, people can't see what you're wearing. Mm. But she, uh, but Gemma's wearing a T-shirt which says NAB Trade Charity Day, 26th to the 11th, 20, which of course is Thursday. This yeah. goes out Wednesday night, so people would be listening to either tonight or tomorrow. Perfect. What do you want to say to the people listening? Oh, so my favourite day of the year, NAB Trade's Charity Trading Day is on Thursday. Uh, maybe today if you're listening. And so what it is is a day that we give 100% of our brokerage at NAB Trade to charity. So we have run this for three years previously. One year it was the Luke Batty Foundation. We gave 100% of brokerage. One year the Alana and Madeline Foundation. Uh, and last year was the Burrumbuttock Hay Runners where they took uh, hay out to drought-affected farmers. This year we are giving 100% of our brokerage to charity, 80% of which will go to Rural Aid's new youth health initiative. Mm-hmm. So their mental health initiative for kids who've been sent home from boarding school Parents have been through the drought. You know, they've really had an incredibly rough time. Uh, 80% will go to that. Another 20% will go to the ASX Refinitiv Foundation, which is a whole variety of different charities. So every dollar that you trade on Thursday, the 26th of mm. November, the brokerage will go to charity and will go to supporting something really worthwhile. So you loved some new vaccine news with 100%. <laughs> Either that or there's a sell-off and everyone wants to buy. I don't mind what it is. So long as everyone is trading on Thursday, it's a lovely opportunity to do good. It doesn't cost you any more than any other day, Mm. but you know that you've done something good with your money. Gemma Dale, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. I've got to say, I I didn't really think that interview with a guy from Beyond Zero uh, Emissions was going to be all that uh, interesting, but... uh, I thought it was. It's got me thinking. I hope it's got you thinking as well. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us. Britain time! Britain time!